can we learn from these quite horrific events really you know if you actually take them out of the context of, of the Bible and of reading and stories if they were happening to any one of us there would be quite horrific stories for us to have to face in our, in our lives what can we learn what, what lessons are there for us and for our lives so the first character that we come across is in obviously in chapter 13 is Amon um, Amon was David's firstborn son and his mother was Ahinoam from Jezreel. We have a list at the beginning of Samuel, in 2 Samuel 3, of all of David's sons. And say, as Amon was the firstborn. And from this story here, we can see really an example of how sin when it first comes, develops over a period of time. He didn't suddenly go out and take Tamar. There was a process. He looked at her. He saw she was beautiful. And even though it was like forbidden because she was um, a princess, she was um, a virgin, she was protected doubly because she was in the household of King David, he was also his half-sister. There were all sorts of taboos around the fact that he had fallen in love, so he thought with this beautiful um, sister of his. Um, but he didn't stop there. He didn't check himself and say, no, this is wrong. He just started, if you like, sulking um, because he wanted something that he thought was unobtainable. And he thought that that was the end of his life if he didn't, uh, didn't actually get what he wanted. So he started going around really downcast, really sulking. Um, and then his friend, um, who is... Um, I've forgotten his name. <laughs> Jonadab who's an interesting character, we'll come back to him a bit later on, he's an interesting character in these, these, few, in these couple of chapters, um, comes along and says to him a whole plan of how he could actually get hold of um, Tamar out of her protection and put her into a place where she would be vulnerable. And in a sense, he knew exactly what he was doing um, in, in suggesting this. And of course... Amon, because he'd been thinking along the lines of like um, what he, how much he desired um, uh, Tamar, he just went along with it and then obviously took advantage of Tamar as the full outcome of that, that uh, situation that he then went into. So we can see how in our own lives if we have anything in our lives which we get fixated on which we know is wrong if we don't cut it off and stop it there and then or we start allowing ourselves to think on it whatever it is whether it's something we want materially whether it is a lustful thing or whether it is something completely um, uh, different in uh, maybe an anger maybe it's an anger in us maybe, maybe we feel aggrieved or something, we allow that to fester in ourselves uh, and we don't um, bring Christ into that and the word of God into that to stop it the outcome will fester in us and the outcome will be something perhaps not very very good, well it will be something not very good at the end unless, until we stop it 
So temptation, though, of itself is obviously not wrong. We all know that as Christians, don't we? We know the temptation to sin is not actually wrong. It's the submitting to it and the allowing it to get into our heads that is wrong. This afternoon, interestingly, I was listening to um, something on the uh, YouTube and it turned out to be John Piper. I had no idea I was listening to John Piper, but it turned out to be John Piper. <laughs> and he was interestingly going through, um, as an older man now, um, the, the things that he finds uh, in his life that he still finds that are temptations to him. Because sometimes we think when we get to a certain stage in life, oh, the temptations you've got in youth are no longer there. But, so we kind of arrived and, you know, we, we think we're, we're doing fine. But he's saying that God's challenged him here on his temptations, which are basic selfishness, including a tendency to sulk, which I found quite interesting in such a, a wonderful man of God that we all uh, respect, and anger. And I thought, okay, so he's been challenged on things which, even at his stage of life, they're still there within him. So there's something that all of us have to sort of deal with um, in our lives um, to avoid temptation. Um, in James 1, verse 13, I don't know if you want to turn to it, you can if you want, I'll just read it. It says, When being tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. The after desire... After the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death, because nothing good comes out of sin ultimately, and there will always be some kind of consequence, which even when we, uh, until we bring it to the cross of Christ to be covered in the blood of Jesus. And that's reminded me, because we've been doing a lot about the Lord's Prayer recently in church, haven't we? how important um, perhaps it is to pray on a regular basis as we've been saying the Lord's Prayer lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil it's good to remember that even as we grow and mature in our faith in God and the next character you've got in, in here is of course Tamar uh, Tamar was a very eager willing young woman very beautiful young woman um, probably most of us would um, be very jealous of her perhaps in her looks you know us women that <laughs> don't, aren't so blessed in that area might, might have looked at her and felt um, you know very jealous of her um, and she, but she also had a willing spirit because she was willing to make bread for Amon. She was willing to do what her father asked her to do. She was a very able uh, lady, and yet she um, was deceived. And when Amon made um, his intentions clear, she pleaded with him not to do such a wicked or disgusting thing. Depends which version of the Bible you read. In this one it said disgusting. In the NIV it says wicked. Um, and pleaded with him for her honour, whilst also pointing out how Amon would be viewed by the people of God if, if, she were, if he did have sex with her. But Amon was so consumed by his desire for Tamar that the pleadings kind of fell on deaf ears and he took her by force, raping her because she, he was stronger than she was. And that's really sad. But it's also sad because 
it's something that um, sadly happens to a lot of women um, in the world today um, in a, an African context in places of war um, it, rapes um, these days has become something which has become like a weapon of war so you become I think you probably came across it when you were in Congo recently there's a lot of women who have had to suffer that total humiliation which you can still see in this um, chapter here afterwards you know you can really feel for her can't you she came out of that room having been betrayed by a brother having been betrayed by um, the circumstance she was in um, and seriously wronged and in the cultural context of the time she knew that in that few moments where she was so badly treated all her hopes of marriage and romance and a future with children were just gone because in the cultural context of the time and sadly in places like Congo and Sudan and places like that where they use it as a weapon of war those women are tarnished and they, they, that's taken away from them you know, all their hopes and dreams as little girls of wearing you know, whatever the cultural costumes are for marriage are just gone in that, those few instances and that's harsh and it's hard and it was harsh and hard for her and as we heard she was sad and lonely probably for the rest of her life as a result of that all that hope just gone um, and also we see in Amon where he had been so in love and engrossed in Tamar but the moment he had what he wanted it was just discarded and he didn't even want to see her in the room he was physically pushed her out um, and, and so she had to go out and she, as a sign of her feelings she ripped her um, clothing where she was wearing a beautiful clothing which uh, marked her out as a princess marked her out as a virgin of the king daughter of the king she put ashes on her head and she wept and you can just imagine the the, 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 the depths of anguish of that that young woman um, in that in that time and you know what can you say to somebody who's in that situation it's um, it, it's just devastating and she's been very very seriously wronged and then in a way because she's been wronged David should have been the one to come to her um, help he should have been the one who um, took action against Amon he should have been the one who stepped in but we read in the end of chapter 13 that David loved Amon and wouldn't do anything to him that would make him unhappy which may have been the root of the problem that he wouldn't actually ever perhaps discipline him in the way that he should have been disciplined but he failed to step up for Tamar but here we have Absalom who is Tamar's full brother stepping up for her comforting her when he found her distressed and taking her into his home but as a desolate desolate woman and we learn he has 
even though it took him two years to do it, from the moment he found Tamar, he always planned to kill Amon as a result of what he had done to his sister, which was his whole sister. It was Amon's half-sister, it was Absalom's whole sister. So Absalom and Tamar had the same mum and the same dad. So, then we have this interesting character called Jonadab. He is the one who, in a way, was responsible for the whole scenario actually taking place. It might have been Amon who had it in his head, but it was Jonadab who actually facilitated it by coming up with quite a, I suppose you could say, an evil scheme in order to get Tamar on her own, away from her normal protections. Um, He was the son of Shimei, which I find quite interesting, which is one of David's brothers. Um, So that would have been one of the ones that Saul, no, sorry, Samuel, when he was anointing David as king, remember though all the brothers came along to Samuel, and um, one by one, Samuel said, no, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one. They may have looked the part, but it was David with his heart after God that God chose for the anointing that Samuel gave. So he was one of... Um, so his, his father, um, Jonadab's father, was Shimei, who was one of David's brothers. Now, two years later, after um, Amon had actually killed... Sorry, after Absalom had actually killed Amon, he was with David when he heard the rumour that all his sons had been killed. This is in chapter... I've lost my place in here now. Um, couldn't stop thinking about it. So it's uh, round about chapter 20, uh, verse 20 and uh, 13, where Absalom kills Amon while he's shearing the sheep. And David is at home, and um, we hear that um, the rumour reaches to David before the actual facts reach David that all his sons are dead. But Jonadab was very interesting. He knew that it wasn't all of them. And the reason he knew is because he very specifically said to David, Absalom decided to kill Amon two years ago, effectively, when his sister Tamar was actually ravished. So for the whole two years, Absalom had been planning this, but Jonadab knew that, which leads some of the Bible commentators to wonder whether this was all part of a bigger plot. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But Jonadab is referred to as a um, shrewd man, who gave bad advice to Amon or gave him the the idea of something that he would enable him to do something very evil, which would then allow Absalom to kill Amon. So was there a plot either from Jonadab's point of view or from Jonadab and um, Absalom working together to get rid of the oldest son in order to allow Absalom to take the kingship? Nobody knows, I guess, but when you read into a story like that, you begin to think, well, maybe there was more going on underneath 
than actually meets the surface eye, you know, when you first skim over the passage. Um, and certainly Jonadab seemed to have got himself, so he was the best friend of Amon. He was also very friendly with Absalom because he was very aware, even though David wasn't aware, aware um, that the plan was to kill Amon. And he was also close enough to King David to be with King David when he was grieving for his what he thought was originally all his sons but turned out to be just Amon. So it's quite an interesting little worm that was in the household. And sometimes we do have to be careful whose voice we hear. We have to be careful, don't we, that we're hearing God's voice and not um, the wrong voices. So, coming back to the overall situation and looking at these, these um, stories that happened here, we've got David's household. And I don't know about you, but to me, it's very hard to recognise that these things are actually happening in the household of King David. That's the same Bible hero that we baby, baby boomers grew up with, who slayed wild animals to protect his sheep and killed Goliath in the name of the Lord of the host. The same David, who even though he had been quietly anointed by Samuel as God's next choice of king, wouldn't do anything to harm the current King Saul, that's because he was God's anointed, even though Saul was not fulfilling his God-given role. The same David who loved his friend Jonathan more than the love of a woman, who generated loyalty amongst the people, gathering those who were in debt and down in life while he was on the run, and developing them into soldiers so loyal that they once went into Jerusalem, which was enemy territory at the time, to get water from the well. The same David who loved God so much he danced before the Lord in front of his people, and who also wrote so many of the beautiful psalms that we like to quote and write on beautiful pictures. Surely that David would have a family who also loved and lived for God. That would be kind of our imaginations of anybody who was a Bible, uh, a respected man of God in today's society. We'd expect their families to be um, reflection, a reflection of their love of God. But this is clearly not what's happened in David's family. It's very different. So, the Bible records that in this instance, the problems in David's family are related to his own behaviour. I'm not saying that that's the case in every situation, it's clearly not in every situation. But it started with David in an idle moment in 2 Samuel 11 verse 1, where it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed in the comfort of home. That staying at home in the comfort of home was what led him to the sin with Bathsheba and the adultery. The sin and the adultery of Bathsheba left him to commit murder. Okay, it wasn't direct murder, it was indirect murder of Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, to cover his sin trying to cover it over. That's what we all do. If we do something wrong, we tend to try and cover it over. If you've got a little um, child that's learning, yeah, like um, having been with grandchildren, <laughs> did you do that? No. 
and they blatantly did you know you can see the evidence the evidence is there did you do it no and it will take maybe 30 minutes to get the extraction out of them yes I did and yes I'm sorry because <laughs> there's something inherent in all of us that we don't we want to hide when we sin don't we we want to hide from God instead of coming to the loving father we do sometimes try and cover it over and hide it so um, going back to this, um, Bathsheba became another of David's wives eventually and bore him a son. But 2 Samuel 11 verse 27b tells us, The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And then the prophet Nathan was used by God to bring David to repentance. But 2 Samuel 12 verse 9 says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Saying, in other words, you might have done it by distance, but it was still you doing it. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. We will leave the verse. And I'm going to leave the verse there because otherwise it would be a spoiler for next week. <laughs> but we can deduce that from these awful happenings, um, it all came about because of David's sin with Bathsheba, therefore. Um, in this instance, it was a, um, what God said would happen, even though he'd been clearly forgiven and that's quite um, specific in the scripture as well, that the, these things were going to follow on as a result. So, having said that, each person is responsible before God for their own behaviour. So, this is David's children. But each one of those children was responsible before God for their own behaviour. Sadly today, very often, um, we're encouraged to blame somebody. When we've got a bad behaviour, we tend to say, oh, that's because my parents did this, or because my teacher did that. Even as adults, you know, in our later years, we sometimes still say, oh, it's because my parents did. And actually, it might have an influence on how we live our lives, but we still have an individual responsibility for what we do and how we do it. So, and of course, it's also true that we train up a child in the way they should go. When they are old, they won't depart from it. 2 Samuel 22, verse 6. So I'm not saying that children are not affected by good or bad examples of their parents or other family members, but reminding us that Scripture says we're individually responsible. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, or children for their fathers. Each is to die for their own sin. Obviously, that's in Old Testament language. So, then we go on to chapter 14. Because we've now got to a point where um, Absalom had to run away to Geshur, where he stayed for three years with King Talmai, the son of Ahimud. And David felt so sad over the loss of Ammon that he wanted to take his army there and capture Absalom. But Geshur was where his father, in father, grandfather would have been. So that's where his mother came from. That's where he's gone back to. And then we have this story 
in chapter 14 where Joab brought this wise lady in to fabricate a whole story (laughs) which was interesting in and of itself to try and encourage David to bring Absalom back into uh, reconciliation with him so that ended with um, the very end of chapter 14 it ended with um, Joab eventually orchestrating things so that not only was Absalom back in Jerusalem without any consequences he was also then back into the presence of the king but as you'll find out as the weeks go on it didn't end there there was other complications and actually what you've got there I think in reading around this is you've got a picture of what can happen if we have justification that is making ourselves as if we had never sinned without sanctification you kind of turn heaven into hell and that's kind of what's going on here there wasn't really there was a reconciliation but there wasn't any recognition of wrong on either David's part or on Absalom's part it was kind of okay well yeah I kind of want you back in my life but there was no real proper reconciliation of a deeper kind um, and it had some very very sad outcomes as a result because we need a deep soul work to come from our access to God and from our reconciliation we, we need something to happen deep within us that as the light and love of God comes into us we need to make adjustments in our lives and we need to uh, put things right between us and God and that just thought that actually this is a very beautiful um, opening to the fact that this is all under the Old Testament and of course we're under the New New Testament and the New Covenant where we have the opportunity to be totally reconciled as individuals between ourselves and God and there are some really lovely Verses, Romans 5, verse 10, for example, where we got this context where David and his sons, both Amon and Absalom, really, he came to, um, there was a real barrier between them. They were really at loggerheads with each other. There was no, it, there was just anger and um, bitterness. And David was really hampered by the things he had done historically with Bathsheba because there was a reflection in what Amon had done with his sister, in what David had done with Bathsheba. There was a reflection in what Absalom had done in killing his brother, in how David had arranged to kill um, Uriah. And I guess he must have felt embarrassed, maybe, or unable or crippled in terms of being able to perhaps address these issues in his children because he hadn't really fully 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 addressed them yet he was still in the process of addressing them within himself so in Romans 5 verse 10 it says for if while we were enemy God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life and 
I think there's a lovely picture there of the fact that a reminder in a way that we because we were uh, of where we were born the fact that we are sinners we were enemies of God but because Jesus came and died for us we can be reconciled to God not only can we be reconciled to God but the punishment has been taken as well and that's the beauty of it so the sin's been dealt with um, whatever sin that, that may be it has been dealt with I think it says it even better in um, sorry 2 Corinthians sorry is it 2 Corinthians it might be 1 Corinthians 5 <laughs> and verse 7 16 onwards 2 Corinthians it was 2 Corinthians <laughs> and it's um, 5 and verse 16 onwards so it's just a first 16 is just a reminder so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view though we were once regarded Christ in this way we do so no longer therefore if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come the old has gone the new is here all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God well, just that's a very lovely explanation of how, just how we've been reconciled to God but not only have we been reconciled to God the sin's been dealt with yeah, it's all gone and that kind of hadn't quite happened here the reconciliation had taken place but perhaps the things that had gone on hadn't quite been dealt with but we are in a new covenant with God where our, we've been reconciled to God and the sin's been dealt with and I think that's probably, I'll leave it there. <laughs>